Welcome to the Future Fix. In this series, we've talked a lot about how digital technology can help communities, how they grow, operate, put food on the table, and move around. But this same technology has the ability to create and foster community as well. And access to this community can mean a wealth of opportunity for people. It can be a chance to educate yourself or find a job. It can provide the means to turn an idea into successful businesses or nonprofits. Or it can simply be a way to express yourself and share ideas. But in order to benefit from these opportunities, you need access. Without it, you can find yourself on the wrong side of what's called the digital divide. More and more, access to the internet and digital literacy skills are the price of admission if you want to participate in modern society. It's a major problem, then, when not everyone has equal access. But community hubs are springing up in both traditional and digital spaces to help bridge this divide. You're listening to The Future Fix, solutions for communities across Canada. This is part 7 of the Future Fix, an audio exploration of the way technology and data are shaping communities across Canada. I'm Glenn Bowerman. For many people, libraries are familiar community hubs. Large or small, they're so much more than a collection of books and old newspapers. Not that there's anything wrong with those. Libraries are central public spaces open to everyone. They're egalitarian by design. Adapting this existing essential infrastructure to meet the community's digital needs is a natural evolution. Here's the Edmonton Public Library's Manager of Digital Initiatives, Dan Alfano, to explain what the city's doing to advance the mission. Digital initiatives at Edmonton Public Library covers everything from um, digital literacy classes and events that we might host in branches. It also includes our maker spaces and uh, includes any you know celebration of any special days um, surrounding digital learning. Digital Learning Day, for example, was uh, yesterday, February 27th. We'll also celebrate uh, Open Data Day, Media Literacy Week, um, anything that kind of involves customers interacting with the digital world. And then again, our, our making and creating side of things as well, where we're you know using computers to, to run 3D printers or laser cutters or even running sewing machines. Any sort of that making technology is also part of this portfolio. And just to get the lay of the land, uh, how many branches are we talking about throughout the city? 21 branches, mm-hmm. but some of them are mobile, like our literacy vans count as a branch, um, but they're kind of all over the city. And you, you mentioned makerspaces. I think that's a term not uh, everyone would be familiar with. Can you explain what a makerspace is? Sure. Uh, it's a place for someone to be able to come in and create. So ideally, you know, a makerspace is typically outfit with a certain level of tools and equipment technology to help people in their creation or making process. Um, at Edmonton Public Library, we kind of skew towards the digital making side, um, where some makerspaces will skew towards 
the woodworking and hand tools side of things. Um, we are kind of transitioning over to a few more of those things um, in our new branch that will be opening up uh, this spring. But yeah, it's, it's a place for people to come in with their ideas and work and use tools that they may not necessarily always have access to. And we're here to provide that service. And I understand you're, you're currently asking the community how they sort of envision uh, a digital public space going forward. Uh, so what are you hearing and what, what do you think that's going to look like? Well, we already have a couple of digital public spaces kind of started. One is Capital City Records, and it's a, it's a digital public space where Edmonton musicians can submit their music to a panel that is reviewed. And then basically we'll have a, a giant online public space full of free Edmonton music, which is really cool, um, really cool space. The other one we've got is called Voices of Amiskwichi, and it's an indigenous storytelling uh, digital public space. And uh, basically putting the, the onus on the members of the community to own that space and use it as their storytelling platform. So those are two that already exist. But in terms of what's next for digital public spaces, uh, I mean, there's plenty of opportunities uh, for people to share their making and creating work, to share digital literacy projects. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely lots that can be done in the world of digital public spaces. In terms of uh, the function in a community uh, that a library provides, uh, obviously uh, technology is a huge part of everyday life now, and it it can be uh, a barrier or an opportunity for education uh, to access the economy. Uh, so how does a digital uh, library sort of, uh, what role does that play for community members? Yeah, it's a great question, great point. Um, and it really ties in, both sides of, of kind of the digital initiatives here at, at EPL, where you've got a group of people who don't have those baseline digital literacy skills to be able to operate the equipment that we might have in our makerspace. So, you know, we'll run classes on from the very beginning of, you know, this is a, a mouse and this is a keyboard and here's how they work together. Let's practice. And, and that skills progression all the way up to, okay, here's Adobe Illustrator, let's do some photo editing. Or here's Tinkercad, let's design your first 3D object. So we see people with all different levels of digital literacy come in with differing needs. And it's okay as well for somebody to come into the makerspace and, and say, you know, I have no clue what I'm doing on this computer, but here's my vision. We'll make sure that we can do the best we can to get that person the access to the, the tools they need to create whatever their vision might be. Right. And so if I'm an Edmontonian uh, and I have a library card, I, I can just kind of drop on by and say, Hey, I, I have a vision or, Hey, this is a skill I need to learn for a job or, um, you know, just even just for a hobby. Is it that kind of how it works? Yeah. And, and I guess it depends on the, you know, the depth of knowledge you might be seeking. If it's access to a tool, we'll say, Hey, here's the tools that we've got. Here's some work you can do to prepare yourself kind of a self-directed model, we could also say, okay, that requires a little bit more skills. We've got a class running on this day. Why don't you sign up? Again, it's all free and, and we'll get you those baseline skills to get you started on the machinery um, that you might be looking to use. Especially in, in an age where uh, if you have access to the internet, uh, if you are uh, sort of digitally literate, you know, you can kind of find your way to the sources that you need. You don't necessarily have to go to a, a bricks and mortar library. But uh, does that kind of um, 
present a a new way of looking at libraries to increase their function as a community hub. Yeah, and I think we observe that as well, that, you know what, some people might come in with with that knowledge that they've already done their research and said, you know what, but I want to hear it from the people who are working with this stuff every day. So our makerspace assistants and fabrication assistants that are that are on the floor every day in our makerspaces have that in-depth knowledge about the, the tools and equipment that we might have on site. I always say that, you know, you can you can have a makerspace with just people in it. You don't even need computers or tools. The computers or tools obviously make your work a lot easier, but uh, it's really the people getting together that, that help create those ideas. And, and that's, that's what's really special about makerspace. And so your purview is digital initiatives. What are some digital initiatives that are coming down the pike or that you'd like to see in the coming years? So one thing that, that EPL is going to be getting into soon. It's not offered as a service yet, but we will be offering laser cutting as well as access to a CNC uh, mill, which I think is going to be really cool. Um, you know, working with, with our customers in, in with vector 2D graphics and design and creating all sorts of fun carving, cutting, engraving projects. I think that's going to be really cool and really popular. You see all that stuff on Etsy right now, and I, I can just see people prototyping their, you know, custom photo frames or laser engraving on on leather or whatever it might be. I'm just I'm really excited to see that side of things take shape here at EPL and that should be coming out in our new uh, Stanley A. Milner building, which is again opening this spring. And in terms of community feedback, uh, how are people responding to these digital initiatives? Uh, wonderfully. I'm, I'll also mention we've had a, few, a couple interns working here at EPL last, I guess, uh, nine months or so and they've been digging in um, and piloting some different digital literacy and making and creating classes and, and events. Um, and they've been getting really positive feedback so far. And I think it's, I think people are understanding and looking to the library to provide those opportunities and those connections to, you know, digital technology or initiatives or digital learning. Um, we're already seen as that resource in the community. So let's do what we can to make it more accessible. In Nunavut, the Pingwok Association looks for new ways to provide learning opportunities in science, technology, arts, and math, or STEAM. They're trying to level the playing field for communities outside of major city centers. Ryan Oliver is the founder and director, and I asked him about the digital landscape in Nunavut and the inspiration behind Pingwok. It started, you know, um, as a direct result of of kind of watching my kids and seeing the opportunities they were getting in Pangertung, Nunavut, where where they were growing up, and and in contrast to kind of the experiences I had growing up in Ontario, and and kind of recognizing like when I was in high school, I had a computer science course, and this was in the '90s, and I assumed everyone did. <laughs> it turns out hardly anyone did. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as I guess there's a whole pile of different things, but kind of, you know, watching my kids play games, seeing those games not kind of reflect the community they live in. It really just started as something I wanted to try, uh, just to see if it if it would have a fit, and and initially that meant uh, translating existing experiences into Inuktitut, you know, just as a as something that we could do quickly and something we could we could do uh, that would have an impact. Idea of being able to say like these are games you know, and now they're they're in Inuktitut language. It you know it kind of it pivoted from there as as time went on and kind of matured all around and really became about 
ensuring that that voices in the communities are the ones that are able to tell their own stories and and not just create experiences in Inuktitut, but also uh, create original experiences in Inuktitut. And so that's where we've we've pivoted really to like just being able to offer education and and uh, infrastructure. And we have what we call the Pingwant life cycle. Very simply, it is we can take you from your first coding lesson to helping you put out your first uh, experience, your first uh, game or product, and 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 through that process, like building mentors and providing resources and ensuring the education is there. That's kind of what Pigmock does now. And we're talking in this episode about the the digital divide. What does that look like in uh, Nunavut uh, for the communities there, and and why is it important to try and bridge that divide? Um, I mean, I think the immediate and kind of most talked about thing is availability, quality, and cost and speed of internet. Mm-hmm. Um, any any divide you want to bridge, even if, you know, in theory, you can access all the same things anyone else can. If you're doing so in a cost environment, that's three to four times the price of anywhere else uh, at at one one hundredth of the speed, then it's it, that's, it serves as a divide unto itself because it often just becomes something that's not worth using. And so, it's it's significant in terms of quality of internet, and that's that's related to the infrastructure uh, that's there. And 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 beyond that, I think the other piece of that is the lack of opportunity, uh, or at least perceived opportunity, for people. You know, as a result of a school system that doesn't have a lot of STEM or STEAM learning opportunities. While it's easy to understand the importance of digital access and literacy to things like employment opportunities. Pingwak and partner organizations like the Kagigyartit Health Research Center found that it could also benefit mental health. This is an especially important consideration given the remote quality of some northern communities and a suicide rate ten times the national average. To that end, they put forward a proposal on behalf of 25 communities, which was awarded a $10 million prize through Infrastructure Canada's Smart City Challenge. The idea is to create a constellation of digital hubs and educational resources as pathways to mental health. It's called Katinginik, Community, Connectivity, and Digital Access for Life Promotion in Nunavut. You know, at the, at the end of the day, what technology is, is it's just, it's a tool. It's a tool for expression. It's a tool to be heard. It's a tool to, uh, to create with. And so the way we have always approached the mental health side of teaching tech is is this is a way to bring people from being consumers of technology into creators with technology. Because when you can tell your story and when you can tell it in a way uh, that amplifies your voice and, and, and ensures it's heard on every medium, then it is a mental health tool into itself. And there's, there's a lot more to that, but what that led to is the smart cities challenge and, and our process through the cutting and ink makerspace project. And so a big part of what we do is, is try to build sustainability into everything that we do. And, you know, when we talk about that digital divide, one of the issues is 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 turnover and and people coming in with ideas and leaving with those same ideas. And so, when what we try to do when we come into a community, when we're working in a community, especially when we haven't been to before, is to is to talk about what it looks like to have that there, to have kind of what the skills we can bring to the table, how they can be of use to the community, and how that can live there. And the Katinga Ink Makerspace project is a piece of that. We've been. Uh, awarded the Smart Cities Prize uh, with our partners. And what it's going to allow us to do is create permanent spaces, support permanent spaces in communities where technology can be used to support that mental health aspect, as we talked about, uh, as well as uh, building any of those kind of, as buzzword is like 21st century skills that that will uh, allow voices to be amplified 
um, you know, from another perspective, allow for uh, economic opportunities, all, all the different things uh, that you could fit into that bucket in these spaces. And so what's the timeline for Katinganika? How does that roll out within these uh, 25 communities? Yeah, good question. I think we are still negotiating the contribution agreement right now with the federal government. My guess is it probably really gets rolling as of the summer of 2020. And then the prize money itself is to last over five years. So that would take us to around 2025. The purpose of the Smart Cities Challenge and the way this thing is approached is you could look at it as almost like seed money. This is kind of the launching point for a larger sustainable initiative. And at the end of the day, that's, like I said, a big part of what we try to do is sustainability. When we talk about like, what does this look like in every community? It's it's going to require 25 unique partnerships and and 25 unique implementations of this model. And so ideally in five years, these spaces exist um, and have models economically and with enough support from, from government or other partners to to make this into a lifetime project. And I imagine uh, any given community uh, anywhere in Canada or anywhere in the world really uh, can, can benefit from the kind of uh, the communities that spring up through digital access as opposed to actual physical communities. But uh, is there kind of a, an extra importance for these uh, digital communities, digital access in, in places where they might be a little bit more removed, a little bit more remote? Yeah, I think certainly any community that that um, lives uh, lives remotely or, or really any community can can benefit from the ability to kind of connect with with more like-minded people, with more people that that share culture and, and experience. And I think there's evidence of this already uh, through the use of Facebook in Nunavut as as a community unifier, but also as a as a unifier across borders. If you look at examples, there are kind of two Facebook groups that have emerged over the last five years that have really kind of brought together communities that otherwise may not have had the opportunity to speak to each other had it not been for the digital access created through that opportunity. So specifically Feeding My Family, an organization that kind of sprung up out of the shock of the cost of food in Nunavut. Mm -hmm. And what you saw with Feeding My Family was people in Nunavut and, and really even outside of Nunavut, but really focused on Nunavut, able to, because of access to the internet, able to share food prices in their community and and be heard in the South and be heard and, and be a voice around the table, even if they weren't physically around the table for policymakers. The same thing has happened with the Hunting Stories Facebook group. And so kind of as PETA uh, and organizations like PETA have this really loud megaphone of financial backing to, to spread whatever they want, whether it's about the seal hunt uh, or other hunting practices, what Nunavumut have done, or what Inuit have done specifically, is is create hunting groups where, again, people from all communities can join and just share hunting stories. And it creates narratives that are organic and and appear on on platforms like Facebook and these public facing platforms that can counter these more kind of well organized and well funded narratives from groups that that may have different objectives. And and so I think at the end of the day, digital access means a voice being heard. It means a voice being able to sit at a table, even if that table is 5,000 kilometers away or whatever. And so I think that's, that speaks to the really the importance of it. And, and connecting those communities is a really nice piece of it, too. All right. Well, Brian, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. It's a common criticism of modern technology that the more we rely on it, 
the more disconnected we become. There's certainly no shortage of examples of market research being sold to us as some kind of community, or digital avenues of expression being co-opted by bullies and astroturf campaigns. But connectivity, meeting places, universal access, and community were the original ideals that created this digital landscape. Things designed with the best intention, in some cases, ended up creating large divides. But the healthy, network-building potential of this technology still exists. We just have to find ways to harness it, to use it as it was intended. In the face of a digital divide, creating community is the fix. Thank you for listening to the Future Fix Solutions for Communities Across Canada. We are a partnership between Spacing Magazine and Evergreen for the Community Solutions Network, a program of Future Cities Canada. As the program lead, Evergreen is working with Open North and partners to help communities of all sizes across Canada navigate the smart cities landscape. The Community Solutions Network is supported with funding provided by Infrastructure Canada. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. And catch our next French language episode, hosted by Katja Gaïd. This episode completes our special series for the meantime. If you've enjoyed it, please let people in your own community know how to find us. Until next time.